0: Hey, everyone, welcome back to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Lorian McKenna, and Meg isn't able to join us today, but we are thrilled to be able to get to talk with David Hemmingson, and he wrote The Holdovers, one of the year's most acclaimed movies with David Script, having already won over a dozen industry and critics awards, and is nominated for nearly 40 prizes overall, including a BAFTA nomination and a National Board of Review win, so congratulations for that, and welcome to the show. My pleasure. You have nearly 3 decades worth of tv writing experience from animation to network comedy hour long procedurals and now a feature film
1: i know it's crazy
0: <laughs> i'm always it's always so fun for me when i introduce people and then i'm like and go and it's like hi yeah.
1: <laughs> hello <laughs> i'm journeyman writer david hemmingson nice to meet you good
0: um good. so before we get into our chat we're going to do adventures in screenwriting where we're going to talk about our week so i'll go first yeah. um this week I, uh, well, this last weekend, actually, I was uh, working on a script and I had pages due, and I had a story problem that I couldn't solve. I got a note that was pretty big and I couldn't figure out how to solve it. And for a second, I was like, oh, I'm gonna spin out about this. And then Mm -hmm. I thought, wait, what if I don't? What -hmm. if I do something that I like doing? And so I read a book that has nothing to do with screenwriting or anything I might adapt. It was just pure silly fun. And so I read for an hour, and then I paused. And then I realized that as I was reading, the the story issue was sort of churning in my head in a way, so that I was getting a little further each time. And after a couple of hours back and forth of this, I, I, um, I was able to tackle the problem, deliver the script, and uh, I felt really good about it. I didn't have that usual push, send, and then spin out. Oh my God, what am I going to get the fee? I actually said out loud to my husband, I'm a really good writer.
2: Um, fantastic. I
0: have never had that experience before. And I have not been spinning out about waiting for the feedback. Yeah, you know, they're going to give me notes and I know I'll be able to address them. Oh. I think for me, it's really about like what's working for me instead of staring at a blank screen and beating myself up and uh, just trying to beat it to death. And I just yeah. like, I'm going to take a step back. I've never done that before. And it, I think it's like my brain needed to rest or... I'm not quite sure what was going on, but I've never said out loud after delivering a script, I'm a really good writer. So for that's, me, it was you really be cool. It so often,
1: because you are, you should be embracing that. You know, it's funny because um, I feel like the two things you identified, I'm certainly guilty of, which are, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, self-loathing and procrastination. Uh, those are two, that's the stock and trade for a writer. Yes. You know what I'm saying? I always like to say that like half of my day, is spent standing in this office at my desk, screaming or shouting at the screen. What happens next? And then uh, a few minutes later, uh, standing at my open refrigerator, shouting into the into the bowels of my refrigerator. The answer is not in here.
0: Uh, but it so, is. The answer is, is cheese. The answer it's is, cheese, is always cheese. Cheese
1: and chocolate, typically. Uh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But no, the idea of like cutting yourself some slack and acknowledging, you know, that you are a damn good writer, a great writer. Like that's important. We, you know, because our jobs, it's so weird. Um, and I think sometimes the industry relies on this. It relies on our sort of like a love of the craft, B fundamental insecurity, because unless you're willing to put yourself at risk, it's really hard to find the stories. It's really find, hard to find the characters. So it's almost om- it, like kind of that self-loathing, the procrastination, oh, almost goes hand in hand with being a writer, you know? And it's important that you can tame those two things and you can turn them to your advantage. And that sounds like what you did, which is wonderful. I've certainly had I had a similar experience this week, you know, and with stuff that I was doing. And sometimes, you know, I just finished a pitch and it went really well. But, you know, leading up to this pitch was about 20 minute pitch to a pretty famous actor. Uh, I was terrified, you know, uh, and I, I go through this sort of binary. I have this binary relationship with my ego where I'm like, this is fantastic. This is shit. This is fantastic. This is shit. You know, um, and kind of marshalling the courage to say, no, this is fantastic. And I'm going to I'm going to feel that and I'm going to convey that is a hard place to get to. But when you get to, it, there's nothing more gratifying. Yes. You get yeah.
0: yeah. So it sounds like we had somewhat similar weeks, right? Panic, 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 panic. OK, I'm just going to do what feels good and believe in it yeah. and dare to believe in myself that I can mm-hmm. fix this, even though I'm not staring at the screen, rearranging words that won't do what I want them to do. So yeah. I had to go do something else, and I, I, I feel like uh, understanding my own process is such a part of this. I'm always sort of wrangling, still, like what should I be doing, how should I be approaching this, what counts as writing, right? But
1: that's really, that's really important when you say what counts as writing. And honestly, you were writing when you were reading. Yes, you were writing when you took time off. The procrastination component of it, I think, is really important, and it drives me crazy sometimes. But you know, after 27 years as a professional writer, what I've come to understand is sometimes when I you know, turn the computer off after 20 minutes or, you know, go out for, I I, I row a lot. So that's sort of my, my constructive way when it's not cheese or chocolate, it's rowing. Um, so I try to row a lot because that way I can kind of weaponize my self-loathing and kind of turn it into something, you know, kind of torture myself a little bit on the machine. But even when you're doing that, you're still writing, you're just not typing, you know, it's, it's, it's the, Writing is not just the act of writing. It's also the act of thinking and processing and going through your own psychological landscape as fraught as that may be, you know?
0: Yeah, I agree. And I, I've i been working with a lot of emerging writers lately. I teach some workshops and that's a harder concept for them to embrace, right? Mm-hmm. That when you're working on an outline, that's writing. When you're talking to yourself as you're walking around the park, that's writing. When you're driving your kid to and from school, like everything we're doing, our brains, unfortunately- Never stop churning, yeah. they never stop chewing on things, and uh, which is why I think taking a deliberate break—rowing or walking or reading—and like asking that part to just shut up, shut the fuck up for a minute, yep. so I can, so I can rest and then yep. come back. And I don't know, I, I'm really hoping I can hold on to this a little okay. bit. the like, can.
1: you gotta yeah. nurture it. You gotta nurture it. I mean, it's hard for me because I go through the same cycles that you're describing and have for the last 27 years, you know. But I mean. Cutting yourself a little slack and, you know, I don't know if you feel this way, too. Tell me if you've had this experience. Oftentimes, it drives my wife crazy because my wife's a novelist and she's a brilliant, she's the real talent in the family. She's a brilliant novelist. And and she'll sort of have, she'll cordon off times, but she has the same, you know, issues we've been talking about. But what drives her crazy is I will often, and I until recently, I, I was a real night owl. step would stay up to one in the morning, less so now. Um, especially since the stuff around the movie is heated up, because I have to get my rest and try to like keep 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 the ball going. But mm-hmm. I'll put my head down. I'll climb into bed. I will put my head down with two dogs. We're incredibly close dogs are all snuggled in. We're kind of like this pack, this pack, this one kind of pack of animals and dogs in in the bed. And I'll put my head down. I'll shut the light off and and I'll close my eyes and I'll go, God damn it! I just figured it out. And I'll jump up and I'll run into the other room. And that'll happen like two or three times sometimes a night. And it really has been happening for quite a while. So we've had to develop a rhythm where she doesn't hate on me, where mm. she actually doesn't, you know, yell at me, which she has every right to do because I keep jumping up. But I don't know if you feel that way. Oftentimes when I'm get when I'm just saying, okay, now I'm done for the day and I'm getting my head down, boom, it'll come to me. Something will come to me.
0: Yeah. I, I have had to ask my husband not to talk to me when I'm walking around the house during the day, because I'm either trying to get somewhere or I'm thinking about something. And then if he if he asks me something about like our life like bills or name? something True and i'll be thought. like i can't deal with that right now and then i yeah. lose my train of thought and then i get mad so yep. mine is the opposite i have to not laugh, uh, yell at my husband for trying uh-huh. to for trying to like exist in this marriage cuz i'm like you know it, it's hard for me to get uh, sidelined cuz i'm trying to solve a problem so no
1: i he's not he's not a writer
0: no he's an artist but yeah. it's different like he's he these the way he describes it, he sees like a fully formed picture in his head, and then he has to document it as it is. And he doesn't understand my development process at all. So I'll pitch right. him an idea. And then three weeks later, it's changed. And he's like, it changed. I'm like, I- I- yeah, yeah. <laughs> it always
1: was going to. <laughs> yeah, you, you apply yourself to it. You're like, this is fantastic. I know exactly what you know. Yes. If you're so used to have like that with that Paul McCartney experience, when he talked about um, writing yesterday, that he woke up and the whole thing was there with the exception God. of the, lyrics. I think he had like scrambled eggs as opposed to yesterday as the, as the lyrics be. He walked around town for like two weeks playing this for people like Mick Jagger and Brian Jones and John Lennon and saying like, have you ever heard as this? As one guys? does. Yeah, as one does to, to those people. Um, but that so seldom happens. Usually what happens, it sounds like for you, and certainly for me, is that I'll have an idea. I'll be like, God damn it, this is a strong idea. And I'll sit down and I'll start wrenching on the idea. And I'll be like, now the whole thing is collapsed, like a bicycle at Christmas that you're trying to like put together, you know, like <laughs> Christmas yeah. Eve, it just collapses. And then you end up making something different. But, you know, I think that's also par for the course, you know, that the fact that things change, they've got to change or else they'll be, you know, it's, I think it's the definition of creativity, you know?
0: Yeah, it's painful which is why I have to give myself this tiny gift of reading a book.
1: (laughs) Yeah, read a book. or I enjoy
0: someone else's creativity to be inspired, right? Um, I do
1: that that all the time. And and it's also good, you know, you said your husband's an artist. I live really close to the the Getty Museum in LA. And what I'll do sometimes is I'll write at the Getty. I'll I'll try to figure out when the fewest people are there or the Hammer Museum in Westwood. Um, And I'll just go. And I will get into that self-loathing spiral of like, God, I can't get this, and it's not right, it's not good. And then you go and you look at like a Turner, you know, mm-hmm. or a mm-hmm. you go, wow, this guy is a genius, this woman's a genius, whatever. Like, and they rendered this thing emotionally in this incredibly, you know, in this flat medium. But look at look at what's evoking what's evoking. I mean, I find that really inspiring. Like, I kind of walk away. If they can do that, I can eke out my small version of something, yeah. you know, a comparatively pathetic version of something on the page. If if you know Tur- Turner could paint that painting, then there's got to be a, a a you know a modicum, a granular, like an atom of that in me that I can that I can marshal. Yes. So that's that's inspiring sometimes.
0: Meg always says it's not pie. There's enough for everyone.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so yeah. your week is you pit you pitched you like wound yeah. yourself up. Yeah,
1: I pitched uh less than an hour. I finished my pitch about five minutes before I got on with you guys. Uh but I oh, want so my So
0: you're you're still in that like post pitch
1: yeah. yeah I got zone the, the endorph the runner's house. Yes. Yeah
0: yeah. yeah.
1: Um, so doing that and uh I'm working on another movie with Alexander Payne. Um huh. I'm co-writing this next one it's a western so I I did a bunch of pages on that. Um and you know I've just been trying to keep trying to keep active um you know I think the physical component you talk about walking around the house, mm-hmm. like the more I move, I think the better, the better I feel about the work and the, and the more productive I am. So I try to, to move around as much as I can, you know?
0: Yeah. I found, and this is so simple, but post pandemic, me mm-hmm. just getting up and like putting a, a hard pants outfit on, yeah. like real pants, a shirt, like what take it, like getting oh, it's, dressed. Get dressed. Is, Cause I just don't sometimes sweats and I walk around the house or, you know, but I, it's like, it makes me feel like I'm a person in the world somehow. And it's post pandemic, right? Like it, it, there's a whole different way of relating to my work and my life and my body and how I'm dressed and all that stuff. But that simple thing of like, I got dressed today. I'm yeah. working.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, honestly, it's a small thing and it's very funny, but it's also incredibly true. Same thing with making my bed. I learned that mm. from like Robert Mueller, the the guy, you know, the prosecutor talks about Marine, Marine, my, my half brother is a Marine and he sort of is very into getting his kid all squared away. You know, so it's like, I will get up and make the bed. And admittedly, my wife, my wife reminded me over and over again that she wants me to do that. But that being said, uh, getting up, making the bed is the first step and then putting on a pair of pants. Yes.
0: Um, hard pants. They can't be
1: sweatpants.
0: Hard pants. pants.
1: they, they got to be hard pants. Uh, and it, because that that says that you're a human, an adult human in the world to yourself. Yes. No yes. one else. Who's the dogs who are running around who see me?
0: Yeah.
1: They, they just, they regard me with, with, you know what attachment. it is?
0: It's a it's a slight bit of discomfort that reminds you that you're an adult.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Exactly correct. And it's, you know what it also says? It says work. I'm yeah. at work now because I'm wearing yeah. pants. No, I'm sure a great number of people, a fair number of people can go to work without pants, but, you know, I <laughs> un- <unbalanced, laughs> Maybe
0: that can be your next movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, pants. I mean, that's boogie nights, nice, right? But I mean, that's but right. finally, pants is sort of, emblematic of, I have joined the productive class. I am now uh, a member of society that's contributing because I am wearing pants.
0: We're going to call this deep thoughts with David. Pants means.
1: (laughs) Pants means I am a value to society.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Um, uh, Jeff, what was your week?
2: I can keep it fast. I will continue in the theme of oscillating between inspiration and self-loathing um, but having a lot of fun. I feel like I'm catching up on all the Oscar movies, yours among them, David. Well, I guess we don't know yet, so we can cut this if not. But it's not unlikely that you might be uh, getting some fun news this Monday. And if you do, we'll leave this in the show. Um, but either way, I feel like I've been watching the awardsy movies, which we can say confidently yours is among. And um, it's obviously very inspiring to watch artists working at the top of their craft. But it also can be triggering and cause that spiral of like, oh my gosh, will my level of craft ever reach the level of these other masters? Um, but I did a fun thing this week, and as I'm watching like what could be considered like these kind of you know high end prestigious Oscar-y movies, I went to go see two films in the theater. One of them was Godzilla minus one, and one of them was the new Mean Girls, and they were both just fantastic, wonderful genre movies, and. Um, it was a reminder, you know, they were both really, really fun theater going experiences and a reminder that there's so much validity to some of the work that people might consider less than. Um, I mean, I'm not one of them, but it's just a reminder that it was a room full of people having a blast at two movies I really, really liked and that there's tons and tons of value to all types of genres and all types of mediums. Um, and it's funny, I was telling Lori, and I'm working on like this kind of traditionally paced 42 minute me, uh, medical procedural right now, which is not typically what I write, um, but it's like very network, and I'm having a blast writing it. And um, I think it was just a nice reaffirmation that whether it's a Hallmark movie or it's an award-winning whatever, um, the work we do is valid in whatever form it shows up in. So that's my uh, that's my two cents this week.
1: I think that's I think that's great, and I'm so glad you said that because you know I I'm a huge fan of of I guess you know genre movies. Hard what genre? It's you know, I love horror movies. I love gross-out comedies, I love, you know, stuff. There's a lot of stuff in the 70s that deeply influenced the way I approach the holdovers, but there's a lot of movies in the 70s that were kind of like throwaway. Um, uh, Tarantino wrote this book called Cinema Speculation and he talks a lot in that about the kind of grindhouse movies that influenced him. And, and I think that there's a lot, a tremendous amount of cultural value in that stuff. You know, it doesn't always have to be high tone to be, to be great and to be engaging. And I think, you know, the willing suspension of disbelief can come from anything, you know, they can, it can be provoked by anything. Um, and there's something to be said, you know, for lack of a better term, for being entertaining. I mean, I, I've always maintained and I, you know, I always tell myself over and over again, like there's only one true crime as a writer, and that's being boring. Like, so if something is engaging, it doesn't have to, you know, make some sort of profound statement about the human condition. It can just be kind of wonderful and engaging and, and kind of percolating underneath. There might be something interesting about what it means to be a person. But I totally agree with you. I totally agree. There's something to be said for just enjoying and You know, um. The the procedural, I've worked on procedurals, running toward that, I mean, there's actual incredible nuance that, that you're able to, to, to tease out of stuff like that as you follow the things that you must follow, you know, in the procedural format. So,
2: yeah. Totally. It's kind of fun to have guardrails and constraints because they can actually like open up doors yeah. as you're following a more traditional formula. So that's one thing I've noticed I've been writing this is sometimes those constraints or like preconceived conventions can be very like freeing It's interesting.
1: Yeah, no, it's a it's, uh, you know, what is it was it, dogma, that uh, cinematic movement that talked about the rules that you had to follow to to make the movies, remember? Um, oh, I, I remember that. I was not sure it was part of that, right? But that whole kind of like um that whole theory of um of constraint, you know, freedom, freedom through constraint. Um, there's a lot to be said for that, you know, I think.
0: Yeah. And then when you start making something, usually the constraint is budget. Yeah. So yeah. then you have to make a whole bunch of different set of really creative choices that come like in a split second. So, oh, yeah. uh, you know, those are. I I agree with you both. I think the the those fences or walls or whatever that show up help us figure out a different way over it or under it or through it that make th- a thing better.
1: Totally concur. and it's usually you know the answer is usually character. That's the mm-hmm. great thing. The answer yes. is usually. Character. I mean, in the in the holdovers we had in, in doing 27 year TV, it was great because in the holdovers like that that scene that's uh, presently in the duck pen bowling alley, um, which is one of my favorite scenes, uh, that was originally at an outdoor carnival. Uh, and it, that had been roosted in the script for like a year and a half. And literally, like, you know, Alexander was like, I love this. This is great. I'm like, I love it too. And it's a big love fast. And then I get this phone call from location. And he's like, what, what are you doing with this, uh, with this outdoor carnival scene? I'm like, what? He goes, you're killing me. You're killing me with this scene. I mean, he was, he was pushing my buttons, but I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, I'm here, it's outside. It, you know, we're gonna have to shoot it in the dark. We're gonna have to light it. I need picture cars. I need like 30 picture cars. I need tons of extras, all dressed in period costumes. I'm like, you're just realizing this now. He goes, yeah, I am. What do you want me to say? <laughs> that's totally cool. <laughs> he says, so what are we gonna, what, what are our constraints? He goes, I need to do this in an existing space with a, with a with a wedge that's not massive so we can get the shots. And I immediately banged out like three scenes based upon just, okay, Salvation Army. We used to call it the Sally and Let's try that. How about uh, a newspaper stand? We go in there. What about a coffee shop? And so he's like, "Great." So I just proceeded to bang out three scenes really fast, just rough them out. And as I'm sending the scenes, feeling very proud of myself, as we we're saying, um, I get I get a phone call. He goes, "I know what it is. Bowling alley." I'm like, "What bowling alley?" So I just did like three hours worth of work that just went gone um, and but jumped. We're
0: primed right. now to write the bowling alley scene. Exactly. We're ready. Which,
1: which, so I wrote honestly like 15 minutes because that scene was written like 15 because I had already primed because of those constraints. I have yeah. been primed to think in in character terms, in smaller character terms.
0: Yeah, I thought it was a great scene. I just love the glee, the the proud. Like it's not pompous joy; it's just l- limitless actual joy. And he thinks he's connecting, and it's just yeah. it's just yeah. a wonderful. So it's just a at ease him at ease, and you're like, this is amazing.
1: Paul <laughs> just. Crushed that scene. He was so great in that scene, and the yeah. kid was almost straight in it too. You know. Yeah.
0: So, uh, so let's talk about the holdover. So, my first question is, uh, how did this project come to you? Like, what was that spark moment? What was the first thing, like, character, theme, location? What was it? Way back when you were first like, this is the project I'm going to work on.
1: Actually, it came to me kind of like that moment that you know Charlie Charlie Bucket has in in Willy Wonka with the golden ticket. Um, I had written a pilot based entirely upon my uh childhood experiences um called Stonehaven. It was set in 1980. It was about me, kind of my parents had divorced rather acrimoniously and and at the end of the 60s. And um I come from kind of a lower middle class family, and my mom and I were, you know, kind of kind of broke and, and a little adrift. And and um I wrote this pilot about sort of like how I ended up at this prep school where my dad was teaching some years later, but through my mother's and through the good offices of my uncle, who is this sort of curmudgeonly World War II veteran uh, who, ha- who was known for his Baroque profanity and, and for saying things like, you know, most that life is like a hen house ladder, shitty and short. Um, so it was just kind of a love letter to him and to my mom and to my school and to my dad to some extent, you know, and, and with me at the center. So I wrote this pilot and my agent, who has the best taste and the worst bedside manner uh, in Hollywood read it this is about six years ago five years ago he read it and he goes man i've never
0: I, heard I, a more complimentary description of an agent because quite often it's the could be yeah. i'm not saying please take no offense but the stereotype is the opposite
1: yeah precisely correct <laughs> this guy's not a bullshit artist but he's 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 he has like no tact but he's got great taste so he reads that pilot and he goes i love this pilot man i'm like oh really you know he, he called me immediately after reading it this is like i said five almost six years ago i love this pilot. so you do and he said, "Yeah, I just love it. I just think it's it's smart and it's sensitive and it's really heartfelt and it's specific and it's dimensional and it's it's propulsive." And I'm like, "Wow, wow, thanks." And he goes, um, "We can't do fucking anything with it, of course." I'm like, "What do you mean?" He goes, "No, no, it's it's a prep school pilot set in 1980. I mean, no one's ever going to make this, you know, no one will ever make this." He said, "You know, it's an exercise in futility, but it's a really beautiful <laughs> exercise in futility." So I was like, "Oh, okay." And so I kind of put it away. I ended up doing a show uh, called Whiskey Cavalier mm-hmm. for ABC that was shooting in Prague, so I ended up creating that show. Um, not long thereafter, um, but what I didn't realize was that Matt Solo, who's now my manager, was my agent, and I love him. Been with him for 27 years, and part of the reason I was I've been with him for so long is because he took that pilot, my useless, my my beautiful useless pilot. And he gave it to a guy named Niels Mueller, who is a client of his, a, a brilliant writer who's written a movie called, written many things, but including a movie called uh, Small Town Wisconsin, one called The Death of, um, yeah, The Assassination of Richard Nixon, that Sean Penn started. So Niels is a client of his. And Niels had gone to UCLA film school with Alexander Payne. So he gives the pilot to Niels because he understands that Alexander was trying to, was thinking about trying to make a prep, something in the prep school world. Ah. Reads it, loves the pilot, gives it to Alexander Payne. So at this point, it's about a year after I wrote it. And I'm driving back from LAX on the 405, uh, just having gotten back from from Prague, which is a 14 hour flight, and it's a nine hour time difference. And my writers' room is in LA, and my producing director and my set are in Prague. And you know, I'm deeply grateful to have a TV show on the air. Believe me, it's hard, and I know how lucky I am. So this is not me diminishing the experience at all. But I was exhausted, you know, like dog tired to the point of delirium. And I'm driving along, and the phone rings in my car. And I don't even look at it. I just pick it up. Uh, and the voice in the line says, David Hemmingson. I said, yeah. And he goes, Alexander Payne. Oh my God. And, <laughs> and I, of course, you know, I'm a huge Alexander Payne fan. Like I'm a huge Alexander Payne fan. You had I've no
0: warning, seen- no setup,
1: no no, zero setup. No, I'm like, zero. Hey
0: man, you're going to get a phone no. call.
1: <laughs> yeah, Nope. Nothing like that. Nothing like that. So I'm like driving along and I almost said, fuck you, Bob, because I have a <laughs> fan who has has, has done did this to me once before and he, he's tried it since but I've been too clever because you know fool me once sh- you know shame on you fool me twice shame on me he called me once and very convincingly in the same sort of scenario probably eight years ago and said David Hemmings and Francis Ford Coppola and you know I'm like not in the habit of we'll creative we'll uh, yeah cruelty and I was like but I bought it that fucking time and I was like Uh, uh, Mr. uh, Coppola he's like I wanted to talk to you about uh, something I read of yours and I'm like "Uh, why uh, of course whatever you say and then he'd be like I wanted to tell you you're a fucking idiot why would Coppola call you of course it's not Coppola you asshole why would this guy call you there's no reason for him to call you you want to get a beer so I assumed that he was doing the same thing I almost said fuck you Bob and then I looked down at the screen and I saw the Omaha area
2: code
1: Uh. I caught myself and I said I'm sorry uh You you said you're Alexander Payne? And he was like, Yeah, last time I checked. I was like, Oh, okay. Um, what can I do for you? And he said, Well, I read this pilot that you wrote, and I love your pilot. And I was like, Oh, oh, okay. Describe
0: now. So, this is the moment that every writer fantasizes about, right? Out of the blue,
1: this, this is the golden ticket.
0: What was happening? like in your body right now, like you're driving, you're experience. exhausted.
1: Out of body, I'm exhausted, out of body experience. I'm half thinking like, you know, kind of occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Have I had a car accident? And this is some sort of final flash of consciousness. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck is going on? So like, I, I kind of go, oh, okay. He's like, I, I love your pilot. I'm like, oh my God. And of course a dream is born immediately. And that dream is Alexander Payne's gonna shoot my pilot. And uh. a nanosecond later, he goes, I don't want to make your pilot. And I went, oh oh, so dream is born, dream dies immediately. And then I said, OK, and in, my, in the CNN crawl in my brain was going like, why is this man being cruel to me? I don't understand. <laughs> uh, and then he kind of went, but I have this idea. I've had this idea for about a dozen years about this sort of ocularly challenged, odiferous professor stuck at Christmas with these kids, one of whom's mother just got married. And I'm like, OK. And he said, would you want to write that film for me? And I said, I, I said, uh, he goes, because I read your pilot and you clearly understand this world and this sort of age cohort and these people and this time, you know, and the the prep school, the boarding school world. Would you want to write this film for me? And I said, yes, immediately. And he said, well, we really haven't talked about money. I'm like, don't care, which is one of the <laughs> things. And he sort of was like, I, I later had the conversation with my agent. And he was like, don't ever say that again. But I, I sort of said, do not care. And I meant it. And I wrote that film on spec, by the way. But, oh, wow. But um, he said, I have one question for you. This is the first conversation. He said um, 1958 or 1970. Mm. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I'd like it's, it's a period piece. I don't want to set it 1980 when yours is set, but 1950 or 1970. And without really much thought at all, I just kind of organically said, absolutely 1970. And he said, why? And I said, well, two reasons. At the time, it was about 2018. We had this conversation. And I said, well, first of all, I feel like 2018 has a lot more in common with 1970 than it does with 1958 in terms of kind of the forever war, in terms of the horrible kind of like, you know, turmoil we're going through in this country and Mm -hmm. almost incipient fascism and like all the terrible stuff that was happening with George Floyd and like how African-Americans were being persecuted. Like, I'm like, this just feels to me like more like 1970 than it does like 1958. And he said, okay, that's an excellent point. And what's your other point? I said, yeah, um, doesn't, um, Peter Weir kind of owned 1958. And there was like a long pause. And I thought to myself, Uh-oh. I think I kind of just insulted him by saying <laughs> he can't measure up to the Peter Weir. And then he kind of goes, oh, you mean Dead Poet Society? I said, yeah. And he goes, yeah, great point. Let's do 1970. Uh, and that's also emblematic of, of Alexander, who's an extraordinary person and an incredibly close friend of mine now. But guy's a genius and, and he's so comfortable in his own skin. He's just like, he can have a conversation about anything. So that was the threshold moment when he sort of said to me, you know, please write me this movie about this ocularly challenged, odiferous professor stuck at Christmas with these boys, uh, one of whom's mother is, you know, got a hangman. Um, and that—that's how the whole thing started.
0: Wow. So, who was the first character that—that that you started working with?
1: You know, I—I I thought to you it had first. Been, I thought it had been immediately in terms of, um, well, you know, he talked about the professor, and then by the way, the second conversation we had after I started thinking about it, he called me back literally moments later after we hung up. And he was like, how do you feel about Paul Giamatti? And I'm like, uh, I, I fucking love Paul Giamatti. Why do you ask? He goes, how do you feel about Paul Giamatti playing the lead? I was like, I think that's a phenomenal idea. And he goes, because if you write it for Paul Giamatti and you do what I think you can do and I do what I think I can do, we might be able to get Paul Giamatti. And I was oh like, God. I will do that. And of course, then we had to worry about it. I feel
0: like I'm about to cry listening to this story. Yeah, it's, it's like,
1: story. it feels magic
0: to me. True.
1: Was magic. It is magic. Yeah. This whole thing is magical. It, the whole thing is magical. You know, and so I'm like, okay. Um, and then I started thinking about Paul. And um, honestly, that character is based almost entirely upon my uncle Earl Cahale, who I think I mentioned him to, the guy who who um kind of stepped into my life after my parents got divorced, that World War II veteran, he'd been on Saipan mm-hmm. in the Pacific Theater, he'd seen a lot of terrible shit uh, in the war. Um, but was this guy who was sort of like about my height, about six feet tall. Kind of potbellied, bald, kind of jug handle ears, kind of bloody Holly glasses. Like no, no one's version of a Hollywood hero, but he was 10 times cooler than any actor or any character you could begin mm-hmm. to consider mm-hmm. because he was so tough, but tender at the same time, kind of like hard candy shell, at Chewy caramel Center. One of the most brilliant wordsmiths I'd ever encountered, like so much of Paul's stuff, including Life is Like a House Ladder or you know, for most people, sex is 99% friction, 1% goodwill. Oh my God. I uh, died.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: right. And, and, and I, that he said to me when I was like nine, I was like, yeah, I guess, I don't know. But I mean, you know, like, and also like, you know, wake up kid is daylight in the swamp. He used to wake me up. We used to go hunting and fishing together when I was a kid. And he would wake me up at like quarter four in the morning, sometimes four in the morning by like banging a pot in my doorway in my bedrooms, you know, shouting, wake up kid It's daylight in the swamp, you know? So I read originally, you know, immediately thought of Earl as this character and then, I think the next character that came to me was Angus because, and for some reason that was one, Hunnam, his name, Paul Hunnam came to me instantly and so did Angus Tully. I don't know why Angus, t- I, I think Paul Hunnam, looking back on it, I was thinking human, humble, mm. I was trying to find some sort of Hunnam. And also it sound, it, that's a name that seems, sounds like it collapses in on itself. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. like you're tearing your throat, like Hunnam, you know? It
0: was, it's interesting when I kept hearing his name, I kept like, I'm missing something. What's his name? And it was yeah. like, what's his name? So yeah. I, I, like, I couldn't quite uh, grab a hold of him. Right. Cause yeah. he was like, yeah, it was an interesting, I was like, oh, well-named.
1: Thank you. No, on purpose. You know, I wanted you not yeah. to be able to grab a hold of him. I wanted yeah. his name to be like an afterthought that you couldn't quite understand because he is an afterthought in the world. Yeah. You know, he's, he's sort of marginalized. He's, he's the guy in the corner that you maybe smell, but you know, don't really, yeah. aren't really aware of. Um, yeah. And Angus came off, off of anguish, I think I was sort of like anxiety, anguish I was sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, I was feeling at that time in my life Very alienated, um, very anxious we, we didn't, you know, have a lot of money And my mom, who was the emotional epicenter of my life The strongest person i would ever known She was having a hard time And and I kind of anguish, anguish and Angus Kind of worked its way in there uh, And then the final, the final character soon thereafter was married Because I really wanted to I, I felt like, okay, I was thinking also, talking about going to um, museums, I, I'd seen um, in Italy not long before, I'd gone to the, I think it's the Uffizi, where, where Michelangelo's Don, Don, Tondo is that, that round painting of the holy family, you know, Joseph and Mary and Jesus. And I was thinking to myself, this is a Christmas story. We got these two guys, but we need, we need profound maternal energy in this movie. And I started thinking about my mom, who was a registered nurse, who would get up at four to four in the morning and, and go to work so she could be home in time. To make me dinner, and how all of her sacrifice was was so monumental. And I lost my mother uh, about 25 years ago, very suddenly and very tragically. But we were impossibly close, and I know to this day how profoundly uh, her death has impacted me. And I started thinking to myself as a thought exercise, um, and this goes to something I'll mention in a moment: like, what if, what if she wasn't the one who had died? What if I had died and left and, and left her behind? How would she respond, given all of the love and energy. Her name is Loretta Gora Hemmingson. How much love and energy poured into me. How she how could she go on, you know? Um, I, cause I could barely go on if she died. And um and I I just thought, okay, I, I know I want to I want to have incredible strength in this character. I wanted to be a working class a woman because my my mom was a working class woman. And then I started thinking about the truth of losing someone in Vietnam, especially if if that person is coming from a school like, you know, Barton, which is kind of like Chode or Deerfield. Now, in doing research subsequently, I found out that the vast majority of young men, or uh, certainly the vast majority of frontline combat soldiers were Black American men, because they were sort of, and they were, I think, 13 percent in 66, they were 13 percent of the draft pool, and they were only 10 percent of the population. So if you kind of do the math on that, that's extraordinary. And there are 23 percent of serious battlefield casualties during the Vietnam War from, I think. 66 to 70 were young black men because they were just thrown into the meat grinder because that's the way that our society works, right? Yep. So I thought to myself, okay. And I also had worked with, my, I, you know, my, my uncles were both janitor- My uncles were both janitors. My, my my um mom's brother is at Wesleyan University and at the courthouse in Middletown, Connecticut. And so I grew up around a very kind of rainbow coalition of of um, working class people, black, Latinx. I'm half Italian on my mother's side, Italian Americans. And so I thought to myself, it's most logical that this young man would be a a, a black young man, and that and, and she might very well be. And I think at the prep schools, it was typically we saw a lot of people working there who were black or Eastern European. And I thought, okay, it makes sense that also she she'd be a black woman working at the school. And I thought, you know, there's such strength and such nobility an and such specificity in in this in this kind of arena. How can I how can I honor this character, you know, as best I could? And so Mary was the third character, and honestly, the character that. I was so conscious of trying to leave room for the actress, you know, to leave space for the for the actor to occupy that because I don't have that experience that I wanted. And thank God for Dave Vine, who I think is brilliant in the role. I mean, mm-hmm. she's so incredible. And I and I tried to write it in such a way that I, I created room for that experience through her eyes because I felt like that was a story I couldn't truly tell. That was something that was the circuit she had to complete, you know? So that was the third character that I came up with. And that's kind of how they all, that's how they all broke out. Wow.
0: So for me watching this movie, It felt like a grieving process. And so for me, when I was watching it, it felt so much about grief Mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, how they're all sort of uh, giving up their present uh, because they're in the grief, not that they're giving it up, but that they're sort of stuck in the grief, right? As that's how grief works, right? You can't, you're not choosing, but it's how they're coping with it. And I thought that was, it was so beautiful, uh, you know, losing a son, losing being a son, and losing yourself or giving up yourself, right? And then the the small twist, you know, the the sort of realizing that you can reach for some amount of hope at the end, you know. No spoilers, yeah. I'm not giving any spoilers, but the the way it is uh so beautifully uh wrought out so that it it I was surprised at the end. I thought I knew what was gonna happen. I was like, okay, I know it's gonna happen. And it didn't happen. And that sort of jolted me in a way of reframing the whole movie. Yeah. That I yeah. was like, oh, I I didn't like I knew what I was watching and I was into it and I was along for the ride. But I had already predicted what I thought. I would do this. This is my problem. I've, I'm i always right. like, oh, I know what's going to happen. And before we watched yeah. the movie, my husband said to me, please don't talk during this movie. Don't tell me what you think is going to happen. Don't make commentary about things you think I don't understand or hear. He was very clear, like, don't do that. And yet I I was doing it. But I. I was so uh, jolted by how it ended, not jolted by the plot or the resolution, but just that it surprised me in how quiet it was and how elegantly it was done, because I don't see that a lot in movies. You know, there's a lot of like banging you over the head with this is how it turned out. It's a satisfying resolution. You know, like everyone gets their comeuppance and it it, there was. Everyone did get their comeuppance. The main characters come up to themselves, or whatever however you say that horrible thing. I just come up; they come up. <laughs> but I, and I and I don't know what other people's experience is watching it, or what your intention was. But grief was the was for sure. me my experience of watching it. In yeah, all those little exchanges, and all the outbursts, mm-hmm. in like the tenderness and the withholding, all of it was in that for me.
1: Is that I mean, what you
0: intended?
1: <laughs> absolutely what I intended. I mean, the holdovers obviously, that's what you know, you're holding over is what the, mm-hmm. the term is Christmas, but they're holding over in their own lives. They're holding over in their grief, in their disappointment. I mean, Mary has absolutely far and away the most tectonic and tragic loss of all three characters, right?
0: It was hard uh, for me to breathe during some of the scenes being a mom.
1: It's pretty heavy, you know, it's pretty heavy. Yeah. Um, but they're all holding over, uh, in, in their own ways. They're, they're holding, they're holding on to things. Um, and my experience in life has been, you know, uh, there's not a day that goes by. I don't think about my mom and I'm not, you know, I get moved when I talk about it just cause it's like, she was so important to me, but you know, you, it doesn't go away that the pain doesn't go away, but you find a way to live with it and you find a degree of transcendence. And there's a degree of grace, I think that you can discover. Um, and so, for me, it was really about how do I give each of these characters a degree of grace, and how do I create an incremental movement in their lives? You know, I mean, the person who has you know the most the person who has the most revelatory um, kind of transition at the end of the film the, the, um, is is Angus because he gets to he gets saved, you know, and then Paul their sacrifice, and Mary finds a way to come to terms with something and, and look into the future, but mm-hmm. none of it is meant to be neat. It's all meant to be messy. Uh, I have to give credit where credit is due. You know, I wrote the screenplay, but Alexander gave me notes. And one of the great things about working with a genius like Alexander Payne is, you know, and if you look at his other films, you'll see he's not into pat answers. He's not into neat resolutions. He's not into any of those things Mm -hmm. that that you might find uh, from a lesser filmmaker. He's a great filmmaker. He's a great, he's, I think, not even arguably one of the top five or top three American directors alive today. Um, I just think he's a magnificent person and a great artist. And he was never going to let me, um, you know, he agreed my original inclination. And even if I'd wanted to push it in a more kind of trite arena or a more sort of like, let's give the people what they want. Kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, he was never going to go for it. You know, Um, Mm -hmm. he was always going to hold us to, to a high standard of like, let, let humanity look like humanity on screen. And, and there's a there's a there's a quiet heroism to you know what Paul does and what Mary does um, that resonates because it is quiet it is not bombastic you know yeah um, hopefully I was responsive as regards no to no no that.
0: I think it's great I I I just actually wanted to talk about that like the the, the, the watching the movie felt like grieving to me in a way <laughs> it was it was That's cathartic not... but there was no end it was like oh yes I have grief too
1: yeah that, that, and it was, that was so a... much in well, this, this
0: this mm-hmm. this the specificity. Um, the specificity of, of Paul's character, uh, you know, we talk a lot about specificity as relatability. Like I have nothing in common with that person, but yeah. I do know those savage little problems he has. I can relate to those. Like the, what's it, the trick, it starts with the tea, the, the smell thing. Oh, that, uh, that's,
1: trimethy- trimethy- Romania
0: Yeah. It's such a specific ailment. I've it never is. heard of it. But, it is.
1: It's a real element too, guys.
0: Yeah, I I knew it had to be because I knew you didn't. That world is so grounded, but we all have those little teeny things that we can relate to that, and it's the specificity I think that made so many of these characters so magic. Even the you know the little kids in the beginning, and um I I was just so well done, so care such a character story, um that I was. I was really, that's why I want to know where the characters came from. And I love that you're talking about the names and how you searched for them. I think that's really cool.
1: You know, I'm, but, I'm glad you brought the other characters. So please go ahead. And, I no, no, that's show.
0: it. Go ahead.
1: Was, uh, I'm glad you brought the other characters because those boys, you know, I initially I'm like, okay, when I was working on I'm like, okay, well, okay, this kid's stuck. He's stuck uh, over Christmas. So it's him and it's Mary and it's Paul. And I'm like, that sounds like bullshit because one, just one kid being left behind just seems like the screenwriter didn't want to deal with other characters. And so he just had one kid left behind. And I thought, no, you know what? The truth of the matter is it'd be fun to see kind of like Kelly's heroes or the magnificent seven or whatever kind of fun ensemble you want to point to a, a group of kids who were there for different reasons. Uh, and then get those kids the fuck out of there and get, get it down to the three people. Cause that's also about subverting expectations, which you pointed to, which I like yes. to do whenever I can. So I thought the real of it is B, you have a couple of kids holding over, but then wouldn't it be cool if one of them was beefing with his dad and basically they reconcile and they managed to get them off campus and that gave me the opportunity to create, you know, Alex Allerman, um, that gave me the opportunity to create Mr. Park, uh, that gave me the opportunity to create that heavy-lidded Viking slash Zen warrior monk, Jason Smith, you know, uh, I got to have fun and Teddy and that, and that prick, Teddy Koontz. I got to create yeah. a real great day prick. And Teddy I'm Kuntz. not
0: going to ask you where you came up with his name because I think I know
1: <laughs> Um, that that's actually, yeah, exactly. like, you know, here's, here's the truth. Uh, that Alexander named Teddy Koontz because Teddy Koontz was originally named for this guy. Uh, also first name, Teddy, I won't use his last name, who I went to high school with who I loved. He was a great guy, but when I'm writing, I just started pulling, I start pulling names from my real life because mm-hmm. it helps me with the, it helps me with the characters at a degree of verisimilitude and makes me relax around it. Right. Yeah. And then right before we started shooting, I dropped it on AP. I was like, man, we got to change the character's name. She's like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm like, I, I can't do this. I mean, I haven't told you this, but these are actually friends of mine. And, oh, and, didn't,
0: uh, you didn't clear the
1: names. Yeah. And I didn't clear the names. So he's like, all right. So, um, Allerman has always been Allerman. There's always an Allerman. There's an Allerman. And there was an Allerman in um, in uh, whiskey. It's just a name that I like because he was a kid who gave me a hard time at Cub Scouts. So I keep using Allerman uh, in different contexts. Uh, Mr. Park uh, actually was was uh, was whole was whole cloth. Um, Teddy, ch- his name changed. Jason Smith actually is the one name that I didn't change because there's just there, you can't you can't be mad at Jason Smith. You know no. you just can't be mad at Jason Smith because Jason. It's such a '70s
0: name too, Jason Smith. Like it's reason. so like we all know a Jason Smith.
1: Yeah, yeah. And 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 Michael Provost, who plays Jason Smith, is about a little shorter than I am. I'm um, about six feet, he's about maybe five ten. But the real Jason Smith was like six three. Uh, he had blonde hair down to his shoulders. He always wore his o- OCBD his Oxford cloth button down, which we were obliged to wear a, a button down and a tie and mm-hmm. a jacket at school. He always wore it like open, basically like yeah, he so- did. Them. And he was the captain of the soccer team and he was a great athlete and he looked like a Viking, like, and he had this kind of cool Zen monk Viking warrior fucking aesthetic vibe charisma. And he would always break his arm, like the first or second game of every season. So we'd always have to sit out, but he would always have a spectacular game and then go down in flames. And I thought that guy, I can just leave his name because he's just too cool. No Jason Smith's not going to get mad at me. Um, and so I got rid of them and then I got rid of him because I was sort of like I, I didn't want to do that. And originally Alexander said, like, you know, he the first 30 pages of this movie broke really fast. I wrote the first 30 pages probably in under a week. And I got it to Alexander and he was very happy, very happy. And I'm like, this movie's gonna get me tomorrow, which of course it didn't. Was like, <laughs> Everything moved. was
0: falling into place. Like it was yeah, like it was boom, right. boom, 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 boom,
1: boom. But he got to the point where he goes, uh, he goes, and I got the page 24, whatever it is, and he goes, and they all leave on a helicopter. And I'm like, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Um, but I said, yes, they do. And he goes, really? They all leave on a helicopter. And I said, yeah, they do. And he goes, isn't that kind of the definition of deus ex machina? And I said, yeah, it is. And that's why I want to do it. And he said, explain And I said, well, when I was, I went to Yale undergraduate. And when I was at Yale on scholarship, we had, I had actually four different scholarships to, to get me through Yale because we were so broke. But um I had a friend who uh, was very rich and she was having a birthday party, her 20th birthday party. i never forget this. And she said, cordon off the weekend, we're going to have a birthday party. I thought, okay, we're going to go to Maswamaga or week or, you know, probably go to the beach and maybe rent a hotel room, whatever. And she says, Me- meet us on the corner of college and wall uh, in new Haven, college street and wall street. And I got there and there was like basically Aerosmith's tour bus was parked there. And what she'd done was her parents had rented a rock and roll tour bus kitted out with like a chef the whole nine yards to drive us to ohio for this birthday party where we would party and then drive back because it was like bumping up against spring break and i was like i can't fucking believe this who does this you know and so when i thought about the helicopter i'm like this is completely consistent with my experience around rich people the yes. rich are different sort of thing so yeah. short uh we're getting, I convinced with the help of Mark Johnson and Tom Williams, I convinced Alexander, this is a good idea. And he's like, okay, I'm up, I'm signed on, I'm signed on for the, for the fucking helicopter great So we go to shoot it at Deerfield Academy and I'm a producer on the film because I've, you know, I've created like five TV shows and run like, so like I'm used to being a producer and I'm used to, you know, looking at pattern budgets. And I appreciate that sometimes there are exigent circumstances and things. Yes. So. We're we're getting ready to shoot the helicopter scene, and the. What we're you're saying
0: for our new listeners is that you're not an asshole on set.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm not an asshole. <laughs> have, that you, you know, got, like
0: you know, the director is the yeah, the creative always, center. You're there. Exactly. Yeah, you got I just
1: you've got to figure it out. You got to accommodate him. Yes. So all of a sudden, the Deerfield people are like, "You can't land a helicopter on the quad," and we're like, "Why not?" And they said, "Well, because if a rotor clips one of these buildings that were built in 1769, the it's irreplaceable." And we needed like a $350 million bond to, uh, to allow you to shoot this, which, but the, by the way, you know, the premium for that bond would have blown our entire budget like four times. over. <laughs> so, I love well, that
0: they were so clear though on their boundaries.
1: Oh yeah. That, that's that. Like the answer you know? is no. The answer is no. <laughs> and so like, you know, everybody turns to me, you know, almost like Alexander's looking in his eyes, like, you know, and by the way, like I said, brilliant guy, genius, but he had this look in his eye, which he was justified in having, which was sort of like, I fucking told you so. Yeah. And, then, and I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, how do I rewrite this? It's so important that this happens. And then, way in the back of the group of trustees, this guy kind of raises his hand, crowd parts. He's kind of this kind of bow tied, bespectacled, uh, very tall gentleman in his probably 70s. He said, uh, May I make a suggestion? And we were like, sure. Because we we're trying to, he goes, Why don't you have the helicopter land on the football field right over there? And we said, OK. And he said, Because that's where the parents normally land their helicopters. <laughs> so, I think completely justified i like I turned to alexander i'm like see what did i tell I, you, you know?
0: i just choked a little bit
1: <laughs> yeah it's a true story so yeah that's oh how we got the kids But no, you have to the- have
0: that in the plot structurally because you're pulling out one from us and angus like you're yeah. you're pulling the rug out from everybody the expectations of the movie and and his mm. expectations and the relationships that are set up and then you're like wait a minute
1: Yeah, Yeah. and if you just have a car show up like if like a like you know the aerosmith tour bus shows up like happened to me it's not nearly as fun as a helicopter landing and then you know in terms of the tv writing thing and then just the writing thing generally like who doesn't love i'm sure you love this you love or you love the the payoff the the, the steps you know the the steps and the payoff so i made a point of saying like how are we gonna get to boston we can land a bird right over there when they're walking by the riverside it's like you know his his father's you know, uh, CEO of Pratt and Whitney, dumbass. And then Jason yeah. says, My dad's got a bird, lands in the backyard every day. Pilot's name is Wild Bill. So I, I kind of, you know, it said like Chekhov's gun. So I put Chekhov's gun on the table, yeah, and I paid it off when the helicopter landed. But oh, I want same great. thing with the snow globe, you know, setting, setting up and paying off. Yeah. So, you know, I try to use that kind of almost more television muscle to yeah. to, to to create kind of expectations and subvert expectations in the movie. Yeah.
0: So okay, so I want to talk about TV for a minute. Um, what I love about this whole story, right? You wrote this pilot that you loved, something that you uh, believed in. I don't, I can't imagine that you were like, what does the market want? And like, you were like, I'm going to write this pilot. I love this pilot. Of course, I want to make it. It's going to get made. We're going to figure out what to do. You wouldn't have written it and send it to your agent, if not that, but it was something that you loved and you wrote. Mm -hmm. And then this beautiful story sort of evolved out of it. Um, But you wouldn't have gotten there if you hadn't written that pilot. And I think- Uh, a lot of us are told like not to do that, right? Like market expectations and all the things. And it's like, or, and you didn't pitch it as a TV show. You wrote the fucking thing. Sometimes you have to do that to prove it in execution, even though you'd sold and run many TV shows. And so, and then the other, so I, I love that part of the story. It's a reminder that even those of us who've sold shows and done things, you still have to sometimes write a whole new script and then yeah. you don't know what's gonna happen. Yeah. And, and then I, in relation to that, like you have experience in animation and all kinds of TV genre uh, formats, sorry, not genre and format. Um, one thing that we talk about with emerging writers is pick something and then write your way into the next thing, right? Yep. So like focus and then write your way in. Is that how you felt like you were navigating your career my big question at the end of this was: It your dream to write a movie, or, or... That's a great
1: question. yeah, that's a great question. I I I'd written I I co-wrote with my buddy Bob Fisher uh, a movie called Contractors about I was on how say, I was I was co ep on How I Met Your Mother when I wrote and sold that movie. So that was like two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. So I'd written one or two movies before. the The way into things I've discovered because I was in overall deals. I was very lucky. I had overall deals for about a dozen years at Fox. So I was writing for Fox, you know, they're also called show barrels and you're trying to develop your own stuff, but often oftentimes you're providing services on other people's Mm TV, right? So, um, you know, I was used to getting a paycheck as kind of a journeyman, just, you know, plug and play, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and I plug and play on people's shows and it was always great, but I would always leave after a year or two, like I only did one, did two seasons in American Dad, but I did one season on. Blackfish, and I did one season on How Much Your Mother, because not that I didn't love those shows. I love those shows. I love those showrunners. I love the creators. I wanted to do my own thing, right? So mm-hmm. in overall, you have a little more economic latitude, but then I got out of, out of those deals because I was like, I just feel like I'm just kind of feeding the machine, you know, and I managed to war chest some money. I set some money aside and I have a very beautiful and brilliant wife who is very, very understanding of, of my need to kind of push myself. And she's like, okay, if you don't want a steady paycheck and you want to start spec and stuff. I'm down, you know, mm-hmm. so oftentimes what you have to do, you know, and obviously, you know, I, my, my, aunt, my uncle, my girl's fourth wife, his fourth wife said to me this, uh, said this to me, and she's right. She goes, you're a commercial writer, which means your writer's block is over when the visa bill is due. Um, and that's true. Like, I've never I,
0: heard anything more true.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I to write on demand because, you know, we're, they're charging us 28% interest on the credit cards. So I, we have to pay that shit down. Yeah. So like sometimes you got to write to feed your family and which I've been doing for 27 years. Mm-hmm. But if you get a little latitude whether it's getting up early or staying up late or just carving out the time um to write on your own without without any monetary expectations but just because you love it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's when real magic can happen. I mean it yeah. can happen that way too. I've seen people develop massively successful TV shows based upon, you know, an assignment from a network president. We need X. We need this thing for our for our schedule, you know? Uh, go write that thing. Strangely, oftentimes that that results in um, shitty work uh, and 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 kind of shitty outcomes because you know you talk about what the market will bear, what the market expects. The problem is sometimes when you're programming, like I, I forget. Um, I, I always like to say um, um, I always like to say that imitation is the sincerest form of television. Uh, you know, it's sort of like. It's well, that's like, kind
0: of the end of the actual quote, right? It's yeah, imitation yeah. is a serious form of flattery. If mediocrity is, you know, serving the gods of mediocrity or something like that, is like there's another there's another part of that quote that's the most important part of it. I'll have to figure out what the quote is, but it was like, mm, yeah.
1: <laughs> so it's a great thing. And or, or as my my former showrunner and friend Steve Levitan once said, television is a thousand people running to the place where lightning just struck. You know, um, and so oftentimes people will tell you they want things like for a while, you know, after Tyler Sheridan really blew up with Yellowstone, every time I went into a meeting, they're like, Do you have your own? Do you have a Yellowstone? You know, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. We want we want the new flea bag, is what I kept yeah, hearing. Yeah. I'm like, but you you yeah. know, like, you have flea bag, you know, like yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah. The, the more constructive way of approaching it is I like the character dynamics in this show. This is what the show represents. These are themes that seem to resonate with the audience do you have something that is equally emotionally resonant or characters that are as vivid as this? And what world is that? And does it fit on our network? Like if people said that to writers, I think they get much better projects. I think, I think when you say to a writer, give me your Yellowstone, I think somebody's going to do like a bad knockoff Western and it's going to be shit. so I think that's a great
0: way of figuring out what the note under the note is, right? Okay. You want something that has, this kind of visceral reaction from the audience, these kinds of, all the things you said, I think that's, um, that gives the power back to you.
1: Exactly. And that's, you know, that's per the beginning of our conversation when you were talking about, you know, the self-loathing thing and the procrastination. It's like, mm-hmm. as writers, the power is weird because it's evanescent, right? It's this little thing, you know, there's this great painting, I think, um, what was it called? Inspiration, I forget what it was, but it's sort of a uh, kind of, um, um, not fond to see, like, what am I thinking of? Um, that, Edward Byrne Jones, the, uh, the sort of that, that movement, um, pre-Raphaelite painting of this guy sort of sitting back in a chair and this sort of Verte, like the green fairy coming and kissing him on the mouth. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Well, inspiration. Right. Yes. And, and so often we're waiting for it or looking for it, you know? Um, and if you give yourself the latitude to sort of have feelings around characters or have feelings around, have feelings around ideas,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: um, that I think is the most productive way of approaching it because, like Stanley Kubrick said, it's never the think of it; it's always the feel of it. Yes. I is, always the feel of it. But the problem is, and this is where it gets oxymoronic. In order to get to the feel of it, you have to do the think of it. So it's almost yes. like a Möbius strip, like a chicken and egg thing. Like you know, but give yourself the latitude, kind of feel your way into it, and then think it through, and then feel it again. You know, so it's kind of this a. This is reciprocal.
0: where we're overthinking, procrastinating, self-loathing, yeah. panickers.
1: Because it's fucking madness, you know, like searching for, <laughs> searching for the, you know, searching for the answer is madness. But yes. we all do it. and you know, thank God, sometimes it actually appears the 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 beautiful thing appears. Yes. um but you can't force it, right? You gotta have to you're gonna have to like eat some cheese, eat some chocolate, row your boat, walk around the house, you know, yes. uh, shout to the refrigerator, do all those things.
0: I want to do you actually shout like out loud into your refrigerator? Because um, I've actually okay. said to my refrigerator, why isn't there any food I want to eat in here?
1: Exactly. No, I've like talked to my refrigerator. I've shouted my- <laughs> Okay,
0: good. I feel a little validated with my mania. Yeah. I'll blame okay,
2: the dog. You blame me. the
0: dog. Um, yeah. We have three questions that we ask everybody. But before we get to that, Jeff, do you have a question?
2: I don't want to pivot back to holdovers, having had this amazing conversation about TV. But I was kind of dying to ask about, to me, there's one scene in the movie that among many that really stand out. And it's the scene at the Christmas party where Mary kind of finally lets us into her grief. So this kind of continuing on what Lauren was talking about. And the thing I loved about that scene is I thought it was very understated. And I'm sure there are versions of that scene where Mary's much more kind of on the nose or like giving us the text of how she's feeling about the loss of her son. But if I remember right, the the only thing she says is he's gone. Yeah. And it's like this, I would I, to me that was just so beautifully like subtextual and understated and I'd just like to kind of hear you not only talk about that scene but how you arrived there if that's okay.
1: No, I thank you so much for asking. I'll talk about The Holdovers 24/7. I love my movie and, and I'm so proud of of my actors and I'm so proud of the Alexander cuz I think he's wonderful. So, I will gladly address any and you know, all questions, especially that one. That one was I was kind of thinking about how people deal with grief and like, you know, anger typically is is the is kind of the threshold of emotion for grief because you're to to really give yourself over that sense of loss is is terrifying for people you know um because it it it's acknowledging the existential reality of life and that's almost too much for us to bear right so to me her sort of wry sense of humor and some of her percolating anger at that that dickhead coons for example you know to see that anger there but to see her kind of be wry and funny and laugh at paul and have like a great point of view she's very very funny in the movie um to me that's all sort of a drum roll to that party scene where she starts you know by kind of commandeering the the hi-fi by by playing the records and then playing the artie shaw record that was honestly an homage to my mother who loved artie shaw Mm -hmm. um but she's playing the artie shaw record because she and you know curtis used to dance to that and you see and this is a brilliant push and it's a masterful moment from a, a brilliant actress i mean oh my god divine in that scene but alexander finding the exact right camera move and it's it's a it's an alarming camera move because she's listening to Artie shaw and she's recollecting and all of a sudden something turns in her eyes Mm -hmm. something hurdles in her eyes and the camera kind of swoops in right on her face and she turns to danny says get me another drink and that's the moment where she's finally acknowledging that he's gone because earlier in the movie he's like i couldn't leave because I felt like I was abandoning him, so in her mind, the ghost of Curtis is still very much there, and she wants to believe that. I think if she rounded a corner, she might actually see him in that hallway. You know, I think that we play this willing suspension of disbelief game with ourselves when it comes to losing people we genuinely love, because the 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 con the concept is way way too fucking devastating for us to even begin to to to, to traffic in. You know, so I think that she was almost playing that game with herself, you know, and, and not able to emotionally deal with it. But when she heard the music and saw the party. It suddenly all came together. And her in that kitchen where she says he's gone, where she breaks down, it's just her finally admitting to the the, to the thing that she cannot admit because it's can't, it cannot be. Curtis cannot be gone. That's not a possibility. It's not fair. It's not a possibility, you know? And having dealt with that, you know, my and losing my mom, I, I knew exactly what that feeling was. And I was just like, you know, I wanted to give the space, especially for for Dave, you know, giving that very specific cultural context and as a black woman, in this situation, I wanted to give as much space and 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 as much, you know freedom as possible within the text. So I left it very much. She goes in and she does this thing, much like that silent scene with the mystery box that her sisters. There's no dialogue scene on purpose because how can I begin to express what she might be feeling? that's 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 for that's for divine to discover and to show the world, you know. So the simplicity of both those scenes, is a function of the severity of uh, and the enormity of the emotions that I'm, I was trying to get get through to. I less less is more, and you know Miyazaki has this great concept. You know the great the great animation director Studio Ghibli. He he has this great concept called Ma in Japanese Ma, which is just silence, just silence. And oftentimes, especially when you're as as a verbally intense writer as I am, uh, it's hard to it's hard to kind of rein in your instincts and let silence sit with an audience. But I think it's crucially important to letting the audience catch up and also letting them, letting them kind of have their feelings correspond with the character on screen. Silence is your friend. If you judiciously deploy it, it's your friend. And the simplicity of those two words, she, he's gone. And the fact that I love Paul's choice of going over and closing the door, you know, and they all just stand around and he, she just breaks senses. he's gone. And you see them all kind of look at each other. You know, mm-hmm. and that's incredibly true because you're not going to say anything in that moment because this woman's life has collapsed, and she's finally like really dealing with it, and you just want to be there for her. Like, you know, if, if your friend's hurt or or grieving, sometimes it's just enough to be there because there's nothing you can say. Um, So that's a long-winded answer to your question, but both that and, and the mystery box scene at, at, at you know in the nursery are meant to be um simple for a reason. It's because I had a brilliant actor. Who's gonna who's gonna convey, you know, those emotions in, in Devon Joy Randolph. And I knew that if I if I overwrote it that I would ruin it. So I wanted to give her the latitude.
0: But the the scene after it is just as critical in that in that she is snapped back into place.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. not
0: yeah. the falling apart, disassembling, falling apart thing that we're used to seeing, and then the catharsis. It was yeah. a moment mm-hmm. and now she's back. And that and that's, really that's is what it is like. You don't you you don't just have the grieve and anger and the sadness and then you're over it. And now you can go be, quote, better. It's Mm -hmm. very much like I recognize the truth in that. Like, oh, yeah, she's she still has to live through the rest of the life. You know, she doesn't get to succumb to that, Mm -hmm. that everything, the emotions of it all, all the time. You know,
1: Insight. That's a brilliant insight. And it's, in, I think it's entirely correct because grief is a chronic condition. Grief is a chronic condition. Mm-hmm. Grief is not something that you can remove, you know, like, like a, like a mole. It's like, it's, it's there, you have it forever and it's yeah. how you manage it, you know? And yeah. I wanted, thank you for noticing that because, and that's a great observation because yeah, you know, even when she's, she's walking out and, and, you know, Paul tries to put a cherry on it, puts a little bow on it. It's like, you know, you want to go back at least the niece, you want to go back. And then this woman's, you know, this woman is bereft. And she says, she says, I don't need you feeling sorry for me because she doesn't want that. She wants to have her own life and her own emotions on her own terms. And he needs to know that, you know? And so that's, that's why, and, but she wasn't, you know, she wasn't she hadn't gotten over it. She it just sort of it found Camps. a different it found a different place in her for the time being, you know? Yeah. I
0: don't think any of those characters will ever get over it. And I don't think that we get over anything either. It's about managing yeah. it and maintaining some humanity and functionality in our lives. Right. And I think that's Absolutely. what your movie is about, right? And why it feels dangerous, honestly.
2: Because yeah, you're no. not
0: you're not um saying like Here's the catharsis. Here's yeah. how it could end. This is the hope for you. It's like now. Here's the mirror.
1: Yeah. Here's the mirror. I look at it and know. And know that you know if there is any, any hope. And I think there is hope for them. But I think it comes in the form of kindness and connection. I think that my mom. You know, I said this at, at the National Board of Review thing. I, I said, you know, my mom. You know, worked at the ICU for 42 years. Nursed for 42 years. And she saw people at their best and at their worst. And what she told me always was to try to be kind because you have no idea what other people are going through you have no idea um try to be kind you know um and and the other thing she said is that everybody is broken everybody is broken and you know but if you can be kind and you can find a way to connect with people that kindness can sort of like push people beyond their 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 boundaries and, and change them and heal them and it's like you know you become stronger in the broken places you know uh, and if, if there's any miracle in the movie, it's that miracle. It's that miracle of like connection that these people actually sacrifice for each other, heal each other and and, be, and come out changed by it, but not changed to the point of like, you know, completely different person, just a person with a, a deeper understanding and, and, a, and a sense of, of of belonging. And that's all because of the love that was manifested in those moments. Love that doesn't call itself love, but love that is takes the form of action love that takes the form of of the practical exhibition of sympathy, The love that takes the form of someone you do for someone, however small or large that might be, you know?
0: Uh, which feels a lot like the experience of being a writer, honestly. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like as we're working on these things we love and how painful it is, and then when projects don't get made and we grieve those characters and we're broken yeah. because of it in a way, and then, you know, it's, uh, and then we keep going, right? We, we,
1: we find- get it together yeah. You, say, you say also like, you know, when you lose somebody, they're really gone, because like I always tell my kids when I was when, I, when they were growing up, they asked me about heaven. And I said, the best definition of heaven that I could think of was heaven is the place in your heart where the people you love live forever. That's heaven, you know, and and. I think that, you know, to some extent, we all have a heaven inside us for our characters as writers, that we, yep. we don't lose any of our characters. And they find, they, they come back and they're, re- they're, they're reignited and expressed in different forms sometimes, you know. But I think a lot of the writing comes from our experiential knowledge, you know, as we grow, grow and change as humans and the things that matter to us. And they kind of squirts out in different ways over the course of your, of your writing life, you know.
0: Sometimes People- whether you want it to or not. Yeah, exactly. I'm haunted by one character. She keeps yeah. showing up. I've talked about her on the show a lot. She's a woman who lives in a yurt. I yeah. still don't know where she's gonna come. People who listen to the show will remember this. She shows up sometimes, like she's just waiting to be in a project. I'm like, I'm not ready to write whatever you're ready to tell. Like I yeah. you gotta go back in your yurt, lady, because I'm not ready. But I'm I,
1: not going away though, I'm not going away. I'll be back. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh no. She's oh, it's very clear. She's always yeah. back there, yep. you know, waiting. 100%. Haunting me. Um I have so enjoyed talking to you about this movie and writing. And I feel like I could talk to you for a really long time, but we're we gotta wrap. We gotta wrap. So I'm gonna ask you the, the same three questions we ask every guest at the end of the show. And the first one is what brings you the most joy um about your work, about writing, about being a writer? When I
1: write, when I write the words the end. Uh, <laughs>
0: I feel uh, that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, You know, I think it's completing something for sure. But I think it's just, you know, the process, like, you know, talking to my imaginary friends, just like sitting around and trying to figure out, you know, how to tease something up, because, you know, we're, we're, as a species, stories are everything. I mean, that's the Bible, that's the Talmud, that's the Torah, that's the, the Quran, you know, that's, it's stories, It's it's, it's us telling our, us telling ourselves the story of ourselves, you know, and just being able to do that, just the actual process of it. You know, and, I, and I'm sure a lot of writers feel this way and I'll just put it out there. It's like a writer is not what you do. It's who you are, you know, and I feel like so just being able to do it, just being allowed to do it, quite honestly, Lori. that's that's what gives me the greatest, greatest happiness and, awesome. and 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 writing the end. Yes, those two things. And
0: writing the end and then getting the check on time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just just those really simple things. OK, so the second question is what pisses you off about being a writer?
1: Um. Uh, the fact that when I open the fridge, the answer is not in there. uh it's 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 not the
0: bottom of a chips bag either i have to say,
1: it's not the bottom of a bottle it's not at the end of a joint it's not the bottom of a chips bag there's no sort of uh, chemical solution there's no culinary solution um it's it's the process but the weird thing is if you surrender to the process then it becomes a joyful thing but it's the process is at once maddening and joyous i mean i I know we've we've talked about it over the past hours so it's like you know It's incredibly frustrating. Sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes you don't know what it is. Sometimes you can't fix it. You can't figure it out. But, you know, as much as that pisses me off and it's the thing that pisses me off the most, I also know it's part of the process. So I just have to go through it, you know?
0: (sighs) Yeah, Deep breath. (laughs) All right, Jeff has a third question for you.
2: The last one, David, is if you could go back and have a coffee with your younger self, kind of like Mm -hmm. right on the precipice of his writing career, what would you say to that, David?
1: don't chase, uh, do you have your Yellowstone? Don't don't listen to people asking you to knock something off. Um, I've done it. It never works. Uh, if you have, for example, a, a medical procedural that you really want to write because you've got an interesting point of view, that's a subgenre. That will never go away. That's not give me your Yellowstone. That's you saying, I want to paddle my fingers in this genre and I'm going to crush it in this genre. But I have chased things uh, for people and chased tone, especially, not just, not just topic, but tone uh, in a way that has wasted my time and their time. So, you know, I would say to my younger self, you you kind of know what the truth is. You know, you may have to do a fair amount of shouting at the computer and into the fridge, but you know, fundamentally what the truth is. Stick to that truth. Don't let anybody tell you everybody's buying Spaceman show, you know, like don't, you know, Every what's, what's our Yellowstone? Like what's our modern family? What's our, this, what's our, that, that, does, that doesn't work. Don't, don't chase it. There's no That's cheese. Kind of there. yes. There's
0: no cheese there.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's or good chocolate. to remind
0: ourselves of that as well. Cause it's, it's uh, sometimes irresistible.
1: Oh yeah. You know, yeah.
0: sometimes it's your professional writer and somebody comes to you and you're like, okay, I could do that. And it, it feels easy. And it
1: is and, not. you know, I've, I've taken money gigs before, you mm-hmm. know, it's like do this and you'll get paid. I'm like, okay. Um, the hardest thing is I don't think anybody sets out to make something bad. And I don't think anybody sets out to um, not, not sort of land the plane. Uh, but I find that the times that that's happened, it's invariably been when I have taken a money gig uh, that answers the question, you know, what's your yellows, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you can avoid it, Sometimes you can't um, and then you just do it. And that's cool too, because you know, the visa bill is due. We all know that. Um, But just as much as you can, just, just listen to yourself as much as you can.
0: That's great advice. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. It's been uh, a real treat and uh, I'm really excited about what your next movie is with Alexander Payne. And I hope your pitch that you did today you get whatever news you want about it. Yeah,
1: I hope so. The actors seem to really dig it and that's all that really matters because he's a star and it's like, and he's great. And I was just like, if I can, if if I appeal to him because he's got to carry the show, like then, then I'm golden and he seemed to enjoy it. So fingers crossed, please, for me. I, yes. you know, it's always, it's always a struggle and you always want to charge up the game, but it's been, a thorough pleasure, and I'm really grateful yeah. for you guys having me on. I've been, I love talking to you guys. It's been lovely. Thank you.
2: Thanks so much to David for joining us on today's show. Um, if you haven't seen the holdovers, definitely check it out. You can watch it on Peacock now.
1: And remember, you are not alone. And keep writing.